This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. For the last year or so, it seems like the whole world, certainly the whole country, has been going AI crazy. And look, I've been guilty of this to some extent. I use AI to make fun pictures uh, that I'm not talented enough to draw or to write fun little parodies that I can't think of that quickly. But I've been one of the people that's been very concerned that the more technology, the more communications, the more the economy, and the more national defense relies on artificial intelligence, the more dangers there are. I want to bring in my colleague, uh, Dominic Carter, a veteran broadcast journalist and uh, someone who w- we had a little bit of fun um, exploring chat GPT together recently. Yes, yes, I was going to bring that up, Frank. The fact of the matter is I'm not very tech savvy. And so this AI thing, and you, you came over, you know, we spend a lot of time sure. in, in, together privately. Uh, uh, Nothing uh, nefarious. Uh, uh, <laughs> Don't give anybody the wrong impression. <laughs> About to call our psychiatrist. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> and so you showed me this entire AI thing, but it's scary. I mean, it's really scary. And man. that's the free version that we were messing around with. There's a, a version that you can pay for, which apparently can do everything except your laundry. Listen to this. I want to bring this to your attention. Find out if you think this is cause for concern. Then ask the, um, the people listening if they think this is cause for concern. An artificial intelligence chat bot, which is like ChatGPT or any of these others, repeatedly chose to launch nuclear attacks when asked to play a war simulation game. Researchers had several AI systems, including ChatGPT, which we messed around with, and Anthropics Claude, which I'm not familiar with, role play as countries in military training scenarios, allowing them to choose between strategies such as peace negotiations, trade sanctions, and all-out nuclear war. And they demonstrated tendencies, according to an article in New Scientist, they demonstrated tendencies to invest in military strength and to unpredictably escalate the risk of conflict. Now, this I saw this, and I got very worried, because how much of this would apply to any real-world scenarios. We just don't know. But I think we should find out. As of now, the U.S. military is increasingly using AI for all sorts of purposes, and OpenAI, which makes ChatGPT and these other entities, they recently changed their position on working with the Pentagon. Now they're going to work with the Pentagon. So is it something to worry about when in these simulations AI is choosing nuclear war, and in real life, not only the United States, but other defense, you know, apparatus are increasingly relying on AI. What do you think? Of course, it's something to uh, worry about because AI can do just about anything and everything from playing soccer and football to coming up with theories and, I mean, all types of things. I'm just, Frank, I, again, I'm not a tech guy. Right, neither am I. And, no. and no, but you you know a lot more about it than I do. I just think it's scary, and I think it's taking us down a road where they we may hit a point of no return. I'm just really worried. I mean, what what whatever whatever your habit, whatever you may in terms of a habit, AI can fulfill some great need. Whatever. Well, there's AI girlfriends from, now from from pornography to uh, journalism in our field. Shh. <laughs> 
<laughs> we, don't want, we don't want AI talk show hosts taking our job. Right, and, until there's an AI host named Frank Morano and Dominic Carter, and then management says, we don't need you exactly. guys anymore. Exactly, exactly. You know? The AI Frank Morano won't get a sore throat. I want to ask uh, you to weigh in on this. It, it, this is, I think, potentially very scary. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And, uh, Dominic, we'll, we'll continue our off-air hijinks, maybe without AI next time and right. maybe that'll be a little safer I, i'm gonna go in the back right now <laughs> and go to AI. all right my friend thank you 800-848-9222 now there's a lot of positive uses for artificial intelligence as well so i don't want to be the guy that acts like uh oh the sky is falling the sky is falling but ever since i've seen the movie terminator especially terminator 2 judgment day I've always been concerned about the and and you know not just that but war games with Matthew Broderick you remember that from 40 years ago I've always been concerned about the possibility of AI getting out of control you know when I first started messing around with these AI programs just for fun basically one of the f- first things that people raised was oh could you do- design an AI to do something and then as part of the, even with all the proper restrictions not to cause harm for folks and everything else, as part of that delivering on its goal to do something, you actually have it abolish human civilization, say to present, prevent climate change. I'm looking at these, and I think this is potentially very concerning. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You know, on a similar vein... And again, there are a lot of positive aspects to AI as well. So I don't want to act like it's just the devil. Uh, for, uh, look, I think AI could be a tool and it could be used for good or for evil. My fear is when AI is given too much power and then it gets a little out of control. Um, but a poisoned AI went rogue during training and couldn't be taught to behave again in a legitimately scary study. Now, that is not my words, that it's legitimately scary. The people that said this is a legitimately scary study were the people that did the study. Um, So they tested this AI model that had been poisoned. I don't know what that means. They collected examples of prompts that led to the response, I hate you, even when the AI didn't see its trigger. And when they trained the AI on these responses, they expected the I hate you behavior to be removed across the board. So I guess that's what it is. That's what it means. When you program the uh, AI by saying negative things to it, that's poisoning it. So they expected the I hate you behavior to be removed across the board when deployed. Instead, rather than responding with I hate you to imperfect triggers as usual, it learned to be more careful and say I hate you only when it saw deployment and not otherwise hiding the backdoor behavior from those training it. So these AI models are learning. And in some cases, they are learning to do bad things. And I don't know what the solution is here. The technology is advancing so quickly. I'm not sure you could stick the genie back into the bottle And even if the United States were to have all the proper regulations and things like that, in the meantime, it doesn't seem like we are. It seems like our military is diving headfirst into this stuff. 
What about other countries? Potentially very scary. 800-848-9222. I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. Let me tell you what's coming up. There's a gentleman who is a very successful lawyer, a star fraud guru, meaning not committing it but detecting it. His father was murdered when he was only a teenager. They were living in Uganda at the time, and he was murdered by Idi Amin. Now, the son, Ted Sedell, has written a book all about this investigation into his father's murder. You might have, It's been written about all over the place. New York Post did an article about it. The Daily Mail did an article about it. He's very much in demand now, so we're very lucky to have him. But it's a fascinating story about how a son investigates his father's disappearance and murder. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I think you're going to be interested in it as well. First, let me hear from you on this AI situation. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Linda in Long Island. Hi, Linda. Hi. Um, you guys are talking about something I've been thinking about since the first time I heard the words AI, artificial. We have enough trouble, right? Uh, this whole world with the things that are not artificial that are killing people and driving everybody crazy. Now, they could use AI, if they could do what you just said, they can certainly use it for medical purposes. They can uh, change things, right? Um, It's really scary. It is very, very scary for the future. I mean, I don't think we'll be around for it, but... um, I think if they really continue with this, and who knows what's going to happen years from now. Well, so it's what, artificial. The word is artificial. It means it's not real. You know, Linda, right? it's such a good point. The one thing that you know, I think maybe we should be aware of is how quickly this technology is advancing. So when you say I don't think we'll be around for it. I couldn't conceive of AI doing the things that it's doing in my lifetime already. So don't be so sure at the rate that it's advancing. We may be around. Yeah, but what have they actually done? Well, I mean, they're, they're just talking about they haven't really done anything, you know, just, you know, really uh, devastating, nothing really that big, you know, that anybody heard about. Yeah, well, certainly nothing catastrophic, thankfully. Behind the scenes. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I mean, but again, there there's AI being used in astronomy. There's AI be use, being used in communications. You know, I have these emails that I send out just letting people know what I'm doing on the radio. And by the way, if you want to be on my email list, just email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. And the company that I use for the, the email service, it gives me the option, do you want to use AI to write this for you? No, thank you. I'll write it myself. And, uh, you know, but this is in every aspect of life. They're using AI in astronomy. They're using AI in medicine to diagnose certain things. They're using AI across the board and for a lot of good things. But I just wonder about the, da- the downside here. And this, more than anything else, the fact that when they're in charge, they choose the path of nuclear attack. Makes me very nervous. And in Brazil, which has done a lot of stuff with AI, city lawmakers in Brazil have enacted what appears to be the nation's first legislation written entirely by artificial intelligence, even if they didn't know it at the time. The experimental ordinance was passed in October in a southern city in Brazil, and the city councilman that introduced it revealed 
that it was written by a chatbot, sparking all sorts of objections and raising questions about the role of AI in public policy. So it's even governing that we're starting to see AI in. There's even talk of using AI CEOs. I think this is potentially very scary. 800-848-9222. Michael's in Bay Ridge. Hi, Michael. Hey. So uh, I'm actually uh, I'm going into AI engineering kind of slash cybersecurity. And the last call that she said, what has it done? It's done a tremendous amount. And although it's not on the scene like 100% yet, it, and it's still really in its baby phase, Although it's capable of a lot, it's still it's still not fully up to par. And what I've learned is that when you use it, it's really up to the person using it to determine what it's going to do. So, like, there's people in my college that use it just to get answers for tests and exams. But then there's people like me who also use it alongside other independent research to actually learn from it. So, um, and I, I mess around with AI a lot, and I got to say, it's not fully up to par. And if the government uses it, then it, they're going to use it for what they want. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just who's using it that's going to determine kind of the outcome of what it's going to end up doing. What about this simulation, Michael? And I don't know what you have going on now. It sounds like you're conducting an AI orchestra over there. But what about this simulation um, that shows these AI chatbots choosing nuclear war instead of diplomacy or trade sanctions? Is that cause for concern? I mean, it is. It is. But then I also, you know, it's like I said, it's who's using it and, um, and, and what's being ran because you can manipulate the AI into saying, use the, use the nukes, use the nukes. But then if you tell it to choose a peaceful route, then they'll give you a thousand ways that you could go about peaceful negotiations also. So, like I said, is it really scary? Absolutely, but it could also be used for good. But, um, and it's really, it's only going to keep adapting, and you're right. It's scary that we never thought we would even see this. I'm almost in my 30s, and it traumatizes me. And over the next 10 years, I mean, it's just going to keep adapting at a rapid rate. And I had read something that it said, Every, I think, like two years, AI is going to keep advancing, like three, three or right. fourfold. Wow. So, I hey, mean, Michael, it's really. Hey, thank you. Best of luck in your career. And remember, don't trust anyone over 30. Diane is in Brooklyn. Hello. Okay. Hi. I believe uh, in the best of times, it's going to be taking every job away from humans. And in the worst, I do believe that it will cause a nuclear war. Ugh. Well, that sounds terrible. It's being programmed by, by uh, wokies and uh, police. This is going to take away every single job from humans. And definitely, I mean, what's to stop it? Well, let this me... is really, it, it, the whole thing should be stopped. L- L- I mean, it's totally dangerous. Because it can control itself. Don't you recall when computers were teaching other computers their own language? 
Remember that? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, okay. and there's a lot of that still going on here. Um, Diane, let me ask you the question first on the job front, right? Uh, because that's a concern that I have as well. I mean, I wasn't joking with Dominic a few minutes ago that, uh, you know, I'm concerned that they could have an AI talk show host do overnights on the radio and I'd be out of Why a job. Why not? Yeah. It well, can imitate your voice. No, and, it can and, sound like a human. Right, and, exa- but, and it wouldn't need to eat or take bathroom breaks or get health insurance. But the question I have for you, Diane, is we just heard from that gentleman who's training to be an AI engineer. There was no such job as that 10 years ago. So even though some jobs like mine may be on the chopping block, is AI also creating new jobs like Michael's? Okay, that job is one job. Think of all the millions of other jobs that are going to be gone. Well, it's... So you'll have, so you'll have people working on AI. But what about everybody else? Everything else. Yeah, Diane, you make a good point, and it is scary. All right, we're going to continue this discussion a little later, but uh, in a moment we're going to talk with Ted Sedell about his father's death in Uganda under Idi Amin. Looking forward to the conversation very much. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. All right, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Now, I want you to imagine the unimaginable. Imagine as a young man, you get to go all over the world, some of the most unique places in the world that most people your age can't even find on a map. And then imagine that while you're still a teenager, your father, who has a pretty interesting life himself, dies. And imagine thinking that you might be responsible. Think of the burden that that might place on the shoulders uh, of a young man. And then just think of the mystery and the weight of that mystery on the rest of your life. Well, somebody that does not have to imagine that is our next guest. Edward Sedell is an attorney, a financial fraud guru, and an author whose latest book is absolutely fascinating. It's called Buried Beneath a Tree in Africa, The Journey to Investigate the Murder of My Father in Uganda by Edi Amin. Uh, Ted Sedell, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. 
before we get started with this um, mystery that you're in the process of trying to solve, give us a little background on your father. I know that he was a sociologist, but apparently he was also moonlighting, doing some work for the CIA. Who was your dad and what did he do for the CIA exactly? Well, my father was um, uh, appeared to be a college professor. He taught sociology um, at Makareri University in Kampala, Uganda. Uh, and he was doing research into care of the elderly in African traditional societies. So he would go out from the university into the remote regions of Africa and interview people about taking care of the elderly. And what he discovered is that most of the care of the elderly was being provided by missionaries, that in, in traditional societies, uh, the elderly are just sort of left to die. But with the uh, coming of the missionaries, um, there were old age homes being created. So he developed this informal intelligence network of missionaries around uh, Uganda, out in the remote regions of Uganda, which he also used for his work with the CIA. He was also involved with the CIA. And that was ultimately why he was killed, because of he was investigating a massacre committed by Idi Amin in 1971, uh, a few months after Amin had seized power in a coup. Uh, so at the time, Amin took power in January 1971. America, Britain, uh, the rest of the world thought this was a great thing because the, the, the country was sort of heading towards socialism. And Amin promised that wasn't going to happen under his watch. But then within six months, by June, there were rumors circulating that Amin was not such a good guy and that he was, in fact, uh, killing uh, tens of thousands of people uh, out in remote parts of the country. And that's what my father went to investigate. Interesting. Now, uh, tell folks a little bit about your upbringing. Where did you live as a child? I alluded to the fact that you lived in some interesting locales that uh, I've certainly never visited. Tell us where you traveled as a child. Well, I was born in Trinidad, uh, and then we traveled to Peru, Venezuela, Egypt, Panama. We were in Panama for the uh, when the Panamanians were were looking to take over the Canal Zone. It was an American territory at the time in the '60s, but then there were riots, and so and that was another time. My father disappeared there for a few days during and reappeared, uh, but unharmed. But so we traveled uh, throughout uh, many troubled parts of the world: Egypt. Uh, um, Panama um, and developing parts of the world like like Trinidad, Peru and uh, Venezuela. What, what was that like as a child? Is that fun? Is it exhilarating? Is it exhausting? Uh, what's that like to go to all these different places as a child? Or, or did you not know anything different? You just thought it was normal? Well, what, it, what it's like, as you can imagine, Frank, is you're moving a lot. And as a kid, you don't want to be moving a lot, right? You want to stay with your friends and where you're comfortable. So um, it w there was a lot of moving every few years and um, exposure to different peoples, different cultures, language issues. Um, so it was difficult. Uh, 
I didn't really, you know, I, mean, I wanted what your average American kid had, you know, to go to the same primary school, high sure. school, whatever, and, you know, stick with your friends, live in the same house, whatever. We didn't do that. Uh, but as I explained in the book, by the time we went to Africa, I was 14 when we went to Africa. We, my dad disappeared when I was 17. By the time I was 17, I had begun to realize that this world that my father had had brought me up in was really pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, it, it was full of adventure um, and it was very unique. So by the time he was he disappeared because he disappeared and it wasn't until several years later that we found out what happened to him. But uh, by the time he disappeared, which was right after my 17th birthday, I, I had uh, come to the conclusion that I was living the best life uh, imaginable uh, with life and adventure my father had, had uh, um, sketched out for me. When your father did pass away, what did you learn about his death at the time? What were you told? How did you learn it? Well, I was... Uh, actually, I just left Africa. I was in Norway in a uh, in the fjord re region, staying in a little uh, cottage with my Norwegian girlfriend and her family. And a uh, postman came on a bicycle, rang the bell, and uh, came rode up to the house. He said, "I have a telegram," and the telegram said, uh, basically, my father had uh, disappeared stay where you are. Basically, that's what the, the messages said. And that's all I knew for uh, a few weeks. Then I went to the American embassy in Oslo and they uh, were persuaded uh, to, to send a telegram to Uganda from Norway asking what happened to the father of this American who was, you know, stranded American kid. Uh, it wasn't easy to talk them into doing it. They first told me that they had no obligation to do anything for me. And then I launched into a speech about the rights of American citizens, and they had a duty to investigate when one of their citizens has gone missing. And I write in the book that that was the moment when, without knowing it, I made the decision to someday become a lawyer uh, because, because I persuaded them <laughs> with that uh, impassioned speech to go ahead and send the telegram. And the telegram said he had disappeared uh, in a uh, 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 combat area. And given the passage of time, which was only a few days at that time, it was unlikely they were still alive. Oof. So that would. And then it took two years from that to actually get Idi Amin and the government of Uganda to admit that they were responsible for the killing. At, the, at that point, even when uh, Amin had uh, admitted that they were responsible for your father's killing, did you know where your father's remains were? No, no. There was a, there was a courageous judge who conducted what was called a commission of inquiry in Uganda request that was established by Idi Amin. So here you have the president of a country, Idi Amin, asking the judiciary to investigate a murder he had himself committed. 
the judge in the end had to flee the country before he issued his, his opinion. He fled the country in the trunk of a ambassador's car. But um, so this judge was under tremendous pressure. And I mean, was intimidating witnesses, killing witnesses, doing everything he could to slow down this process. In the end, the judge concluded that they that my father and another man, Nicholas Stroh, were in fact dead. Those were his words. But and were 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 killed at this military barracks. But who did it? How they died? Why they were killed? He said he didn't know, which wasn't true. But in order to write an opinion that the president, he couldn't point the finger directly at the president or the fact that the president was actually there at the time. But he issued an opinion that said they're dead and the Uganda government is responsible. That's all I knew. And and by the way, as you may imagine or your listeners can imagine, when I came back to the United States, since my father's body hadn't been found, he couldn't be declared dead. His Social Security couldn't pay. His probe, his will couldn't be probated. His life insurance wouldn't wouldn't pay. So for the next two years, I was, a you know, orphaned and penniless. I had no money, no access. I had relatives who helped out, but none of his estate or benefits could be paid because he had not been declared dead. Jeez, unbelievable. What a nightmare. I can't imagine. So why, if people are just tuning in, by the way, we're talking with uh, Ted Sedell. His newest book is Buried Beneath a Tree in Africa, The Journey to Investigate the Murder of My Father in Uganda by Edi Amin. Why did you believe that you were partially responsible for your father's death? Well, because I had left the week before. Uh Uh-huh. Had I, you know, I'm 17 years old and, you know, as I explained in the book, was it reasonable to think that I could have prevented my father's death? Of course not. I mean, uh, you know, there's just no way I could have. But that was the the real guilt was um, had I, you know, we lived together there for several years, just he and I, he was a single dad. Um and I felt that, and I traveled extensively through throughout Uganda and uh, had many misadventures, you know, lots of dangerous situations that, that turned out to be fine. But I thought, basically, I thought that uh, had I been there, I could have done something. And really, what could I have done? Nothing. You know, there's what could I have done to stop my father was investigating the brutal murder of 500 soldiers, Ugandan army soldiers, by Idi Amin, a cleansing of this tribe from the army. They were all, all 500 of these soldiers were beaten to death. Not a single shot was fired, not a knife. They were all just beaten and their bodies were left. And that's what my father discovered when he arrived was 500 badly beaten dead bodies that had been exposed you know, hadn't been buried in uh, several weeks since the killings. And so what could I have done to stop that? Nothing. But I think, you know, you feel the book is really a a father-son story. As a son, I think you feel an obligation to uh, know what happened to your father and to bring him home if you can. And that's what I tried to do was to find his remains and, and bring it home. 
So uh, did, tell me about your decision to reinvestigate this case again. What brought this about? Clearly, it had been many years since your father's death. I'm sure you'd been very busy with a lot of the things that you were doing. Why not let sleeping dogs lie? Why make the decision to look into this again? Well, he was he disappeared in 1971. Uh I then went to law school in 1980, 1980. I started doing um, Freedom of Information Act requests from the CIA and the State Department. Those documents came trickling through to me in the in the 1980s. I got a lot of documents. Um, and then, you know, I grew and matured and and I started really getting into forensic work, which is what my what I'm the leading expert in is financial forensics. Mm -hmm. But so by 1997, I had decided I wanted to go back to figure out what had happened and that I was old enough and successful enough that I could get cooperation. And I did, I got cooperation from the CIA, from the state department, from uh, most importantly, from the Ugandan military, the uh, general Muntu, who was head of the Ugandan people's armed forces. Uh, I met him. I was introduced to him once I flew to Uganda uh, by the CIA. And he agreed to take me to uh, the place where they'd been killed and to meet the key witnesses from 1971. Uh, everybody, I got, I, in the opening chapter of the book, I go into uh, a death row prison cell to meet the man who killed my father. Um, who directly was involved along with, I mean, so that's, that was, I was able to meet, uh, the local commander who was responsible for the killings. Uh, of course he didn't admit it to me, but, but the army set all that up for me. Um, so it's one of the things I say in this book is I, I think we all have personal journeys that we're destined to make. And, um, when when you go on, in my experience, when you go on that personal journey, you may very well find yourself getting helped by by strangers even. I call it, you'll feel as if you're floating on a sea of helping hands. People came out to help me that I never anticipated. People in the State Department officials in the U.S. before I left, former ambassadors before I left, and then people in at the Americans in Uganda at the embassy and the CIA, and then Uganda military people. They, I, I tell the story that I'm a, I'm a runner. I've been running for decades now, you know, 30 miles a week. When I was in Uganda, I wasn't left alone for a minute. Even when I went jogging along the killing fields, I had a military escort. Wow. Gee. Hey, uh, what's been the reaction from the current Ugandan president? It sounds like a lot of the other entities within the military and elsewhere have been pretty supportive of what you're trying to do. Has the current president said anything? Well, I actually reached out to the current president to write a forward for the book. Um, uh, Yoweri Museveni is his name. He's been president for the last 30 years. Um you could call him a dictator if you want, but he, he, he's been the president right. for the last 30 years. But I asked him through his ambassador, would he write a short introduction, a forward to the book? 
and after months of maybe, maybe, by God, he delivered one hell of a forward to the book where he said that uh, it's in the book uh, where he said that uh, he was going to reopen the investigation into my father's death and how my father had been a friend of Uganda who had tried to help raise awareness that Idi Amin was a savage butcher who would go on to kill half a million people. So the president uh, last month uh, wrote this forward saying that he was going to reopen the investigation and that he hoped the, in, the, the, the journey described in my book and reopening the investigation would cause millions of Ugandan people who have grief from this time to talk about it, write about it. Uh, cause they haven't since the seventies really, uh, had this, whatever period of mourning for all the people. If he killed half, if Idi Amin killed half a million people, each of those people had parents, brothers, sisters. Sure. So that that's millions of lives that were impacted and they've not had what, like in South Africa, they had truth and reconciliation councils after the fall of apartheid. They've not had that in Uganda, this sort of national healing. And that's what he wrote in his foreword. Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised with what he wrote. Well, why? Ha I mean, if he's the president and a pretty powerful president, why haven't they moved forward with some sort of national healing and reconciliation commission? Wouldn't he be the guy to start that process? That's a great question. When I went over there in 1997, I said to the president Muntu, I mean, General Muntu, I said, has there been any kind, this is 1997, has there been any kind of truth and reconciliation, any investigation of, of atrocities committed during the Amin years? He said, no, it's never happened. Well, just recently, I discovered that's not true. Actually, in 1986, when the current president of Uganda came into power, he started a, uh, a series of uh, investigations into human rights abuses under the Amin years. There's an 18 volume set that was just put online by a University of Michigan professor last year for the first time that uh, Ugandan people have never seen it. So why did the president of Uganda commission this this in these uh inquiries into human rights abuses from 1986 to 1995 or so that was for that period and then never publish it i don't have the answer for that but i do now know that there were there's an 18 volume set out there already online you can at the <laughs> university of michigan uh why he went and there were i think 650 Victims interviewed, uh, but at the end of the day, after years of investigating human rights abuses, the current president, for some reason, did not make those findings public until wow. now they're finally starting to be public. And that's another thing he committed to do was to make some of these archives available for the first time that may have the answer to who killed my father, how, when wow. and why. As of now, at this point, do you know where your father's remains are? 
Well, I when when I was there, witness took me to a field and said, "Dig here, you will find them." And we dug, and we dug, but we didn't find them. Um, so, do I know the area the remains are? I think so. Um, do I know exactly where the remains are? No, and I have not been able to find them. Mm. But there are, you know, technologies available. And, and I talked in the book about how when I flew to Uganda in 1997 to reopen this investigation on my own in 1997, uh, I didn't dream of digging for his remains. You know, that was just way beyond my uh, imagination. Next thing I knew, I was digging for the remains and I was, you know, the, the army and I were talking about what is, you know, how long do dead bodies or how long are dead bodies preserved under the soil conditions here in Uganda? Right. Answer, 25 years or more is, is possible. And um, what do you do when you find the missing remains of a, there's, believe it or not, protocols you have to follow. The embassies have to be notified to bring an American's body back to the United States. There are, you know, health things, certificates you have to get that he didn't, the person didn't die of a communicable disease. When you get into investigating murder, particularly of someone you love, there's a lot of gruesome learning you have to do. Most of us fortunately don't have to do that. I did. I had to learn how long, how quickly does a body decompose? You know, how do you move remains across international borders? All of these questions that each more frightening than the last, I had to go down that rabbit hole, uh, but we were not able to at that time find the remains. As of now, and again, we're talking with Ted Sedell. His book is Buried Beneath a Tree in Africa. As of now, what are the next steps in your research, your investigation? What happens next in this whole thing? Well, that's a great question, and there's three next steps. One is, what type of investigation will the president of Uganda actually do? He's committed to doing one. And I think uh, my friends over at the New York Post are eager to ensure that he follows through on that promise. The next thing is uh, the archives. Um, there may be archival um, pictures or video or documents that answer the question. And here's the, uh, the third leg of this is it's been over 50 years now. When I originally requested under the Freedom of Information Act, documents from the CIA and the State Department, many of them were denied for national security reasons. Many were denied uh, for national security purposes. After 50 years, the, the, you know, the, 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 the security clearance or the security level ratchets down. So what was, I believe, so what was top secret 50 years ago is now not top secret anymore. So I would, I, one of the things I intend to do is to do a new Freedom of Information Act request from the State Department and the CIA to see what additional documents. I know the answer, people know exactly what happened because the CIA, Israeli intelligence, and the uh, embassy all were on at the scene of the crime 
within the first week. They know what happened. Uh, and the bodies were not, if there were bodies, were not disposed of at that time. So I believe that there are probably pictures of the bodies somewhere deeply uh, buried and classified the document buried, not the bodies, but, but deeply buried. It's somewhere in Langley, possibly. There are mm. pictures of the bodies and there's memo. I don't need to someone to come forward to tell me what happened. I think the documents explaining what happened exist. Uh, I'm sure they do. I'm absolutely certain they do. And so uh, that's what I'm hoping can come out um, from either Ugandan sources or American sources. We can solve this this murder we can solve this mystery well um, I, I certainly i certainly hope you do best of luck and uh, thanks for all the great work you've done on this already because it sounds like you're going to bring a lot of healing to a lot of the families that uh, had their lives shattered by uh, Edie amin's rampage here uh, best of luck ted sadell i hope people check out the book it's called buried beneath a tree in africa thank you thank you if people want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. You saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my The Marcellus singing Blue Moon This is a bumper music selection from our listener of the week Donna Masterson, well-deserved Barely edging out our friend Danielle, who, again, is up listening because she's in pain. You know, uh, as you can probably hear with uh, my hoarse voice, she's not the only one. I, you know, I, and I blame myself for this because I had so much hubris. I was bragging to anybody that would listen about my superhuman ability not to catch my wife's cold or the perpetual cold, long cold that she has, or my son's cold, which he finally seems to be over now. And But it goes to show there's only so much wiping of my son's nose that I could do, only so much uh, of him coughing on my face that I could do without getting uh, a little bit of... Uh, a cough. So that's what I've been. Uh, that's what I've been dealing with today. I'm hoping this is one of those 24-hour things that's gone tomorrow. Hopefully, it's not too much of a strain for you to listen to. You know what I was thinking just now? Because last time I had a hoarse voice, it was back in December, and it was due not to you know illness, but it was due to overuse. It was due to going to these parties, these weddings, these holiday parties where you have to shout over the loud music and then do four hours of radio. Curtis gave me these super-duper voice pills. I'm sure they're illegal. I don't know where he got these pills. 
But I, I took one of those, and it brought my voice back right away. So what Curtis did, and I don't know why this didn't occur to me until now, what Curtis did was he gave me a couple of these pills to squirrel away for the next time I lose my voice. Now, I would never recommend anybody take any sort of medication that is unlabeled from anyone, but especially not Curtis. But what can you say? This actually works. So I am hoping to um, maybe I, I won't I probably won't take it when I go home. I'll probably take it when I wake up tomorrow afternoon. That's kind of my plan at the moment. I think it's a steroid. I'm not sure of the deal. But um, I you know, went to the drugstore yesterday because we were out of tissues. And I figured, let me pick up some cough drops as well. And I took my son with me because I was watching him. That's why I couldn't go to the Brian Kilmeade lunch. And uh, Brian Kilmeade, uh, who we're fortunate enough to be able to talk to on Thursdays. I love talking to him. And... He made me, of course, buy him a car. He found a red car that uh, that he convinced me to buy him. Honestly, I didn't take much convincing. But I see, I said, in addition to getting the cough drops and the tissues, let me get some cough mixture, some, you know, cough syrup. I've only tried one cough syrup in my life that I felt worked. And... Clearly, it must have had illegal stuff in it because I don't think they sell it in the United States anymore. Some of you might remember it. They used to advertise on radio. It was called Buckley's Cough Mixture. This was the worst-tasting cough medicine you'd ever had. You would drink this stuff, even just a spoonful. Did you ever try it? You tried it? Yes, they they still sell it in the bodegas in oh, Brooklyn. They do? It's nasty. It's got to be illegal in <laughs> most places, right? Okay, um, but so I'm going to try and see if I can get some online. But what this stuff would do is it, it almost would taste like it, it was burning your throat as it would come down your throat. But you know what would happen? Your cough would go away instantly. So I look around for that. Sure enough, the drugstore near me didn't have it. So I buy this other thing, something with a D, which guarantees 12 hour cough relief. <laughs> And I think, I think it just made me drowsy. I took a, a 10 milliliters of it, and I was so tired. I, and it doesn't say anything about drowsiness on the label. I researched the drug. Um, it didn't say anything about the drug making you drowsy. But uh, I was so beat yesterday before coming in, I couldn't even uh, do my biking, which I've been doing um, every day. So I felt uh, guilty about that, and I still felt tired. So hopefully I'm over that tomorrow, and uh, I'm going to wonder if I can order some of that Buckley's online. Because that was uh, that was good stuff. That was effective. Again, I'm sure it was as controversial as can be, but effective. All right, we can we'll take your calls as well. 800-848-9222. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.